This talk is given by Vanessa Zvise Goddard, a writer and lay Zen teacher based in New York City. This talk, like all of Zvise's talks, is offered freely. If you'd like to make a donation, find out more about Zvise's teachings, or sign up for her newsletter, please visit her website at vanessasvisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. May the merits of these teachings benefit all beings. May these words help and not harm. May they clarify and not confuse. May they self-liberate, leaving no trace of me. So last week I wrote in the newsletter, right, and about this article that I had read on streakers, right, runners who commit to running um, every day without fail, no matter the circumstances. And the most visible of them, meaning he has, you know, whole following, has been doing it for just over three years, every single day. The longest, the, 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 the guy, because it is a man who's been doing it the longest, has been doing it for 50 years. And I was trying to imagine if that is even possible. Apparently, apparently it is. It, it is. Um, but he's been running without fail for 50 years. And so I mentioned how after reading this article, I decided to commit to a Zazen streak and sitting a minimum of 10 minutes, which really for me is more, you know, my minimum tends to, to be an hour, but if it was, if things were really packed that I would do it for at least 10 minutes. And to do this every day, regardless of what else was going on in my life. And I decided to do this not so much because my own sitting is sporadic and I needed, you know, something to to help me to commit to it, because I am fortunate enough and I have learned over the years really how fortunate I am that I really love Zazen. And that it's not something that I've struggled with. I mean, I've struggled with many other things in my practice, but the sitting itself, turning to the cushion and and keeping that practice over time has not been the, the heart of my struggle. And that I've been doing it now for long enough that um, it's now really an integral part of my life. But I did want to see again what would happen if I committed to that degree of consistency, right? To do something without fail and therefore to feel every day what happens when I allow some things, some activity, some action to become uh, rooted right, to become the thing that holds everything else. And in so doing, becomes refuge. And then I invited those of you who wanted to, to join me. And some of you have sitting every morning and some are sitting on your own. And you've told me how you've been finding time to do that, you know, sitting in your car, sitting in your bed as your partner is sleeping. Um, 
and oh, somebody was finding, you know, 10 minutes during our, their lunch break. And it's wonderful. You know, today is the eighth day in which we, can, we, we place our brick on that thousand road leading into the ocean, leading into the unknowable. And if you are listening at home to a recording of this later on, and you don't recognize that reference to the brick road, you know, just look up um, the, the, I gave a talk where I referenced Ursula Le Guin's story, Things, a magnificent story. And it's in my mind, the perfect, perfect analogy for the spiritual path. But so some of you have been using the, the daily Zazen link um, that, I, that I sent. And some of you are using the link at other times in the day. And I mentioned how I get an email when you join the Zoom room. And at least one of you mentioned, you know, how helpful it is to know that I know that you're sitting, right? To have that, that, that touch that, that um, accountability, right? So if we can't sit in a Zendo together yet, in this small way, we share our Zazen. And I have to say that I'll be working away, you know, I'll be sitting at my desk and I'll be working away and then I'll get the email that Norm joined the Zoom room or Julia or uh, Jitsuko. And it's actually really nice for me too, you know, I. I um, I know then that you are sitting, you know, kind of as when, when we would do the, the, um, uh, the vigil at the monastery, right? And it's this, this open time of sitting and you would be walking by, you know, the, the, the hallway and seeing someone sitting. And the whole point of the vigil is that somebody is always sitting in the zendo. And so it's, it's a continuous thread of zazen. We started doing it for 12 hours and then it became 24. And I think now it's um, a weekend. And, and, and that is part of how I envision this as well, you know, that there is, this continuous thread day after day that somebody somewhere, at least for 10 minutes is sitting. And if I could just ask if you do use the link at other times, you know, so not in the morning, please just do use it for Zazen. I, I know that should be obvious, but apparently it isn't. <laughs> so please do use it for Zazen. That's what it's intended for. And remember that if you get bumped off, it's because I need to get on the account, but don't let that discourage you. Now, I also said when I started that the point was not to see how many days without Zazen we could do or I could do. Just as you know, the purpose when you're counting your breath, you begin practice is not how many times can you get to 10 without getting distracted, but the point is to be present. Right, to be fully present with your breath, with your body and mind, and to the relationship between these and the environment that you're in. And this is important. 
because although it seems like it's a it's a beginner's aspect of sitting i can't tell you how many times people actually are focusing on the counting of the breath as opposed to the breath are how many times they ask am i doing this right you know did i let go of a thought quickly enough did i return am i being honest enough in a, in a way in my zazen and that's not the point, not really. The point is to be fully with yourself, uninterruptedly, and to be with what is coming up and to notice. I said many times before, this is a thought. This is my breath. This is a thought I need to take up and look at. This is a thought I can let go of. I can release, opening the hand of thought. And so here, likewise, the commitment is to create that space for ourselves, for those 10 minutes, for that half hour, for that hour, however long you sit, that you are saying, this is what I'm turning toward. And this is important enough that I will forego doing other things in my day so that I can turn to this so that I can turn to this stillness and silence, and I will give that to myself, even when I think I'm too busy, when I think there's too much going on and I don't have time for practice. And you think, you know, 10 minutes in 24 hours, I can do that. I can commit to 10 minutes of pretty much anything. So I will do this, I will offer this to myself no matter what. And that no matter what is what I wanted to, to talk about. Because I have found it transformative in my own life. I have found it to be the most trustworthy ground amid groundlessness which as we know is the way of things. And you know, at first I really stumbled upon this ground and I kind of fell into it. I've told the story of, of how I found this book across the ocean as I was backpacking through Europe in a hostel, the bedside, um, my bedside table in the drawer was this book on Zen. And I don't even remember the title. I don't remember the author. I don't remember what book it was. But I remember picking it up and reading the instructions of Zazen and deciding in that moment that that was what I was going to turn toward. And then sitting down and thinking to myself, where have I been my whole life that I haven't found this sooner? I was 20. And I was on this trip, you know, really to, to find myself. To figure out who I was. Because I didn't yet know that always, always, what you find is the one who is looking. 
and that I didn't need to go across the ocean, that I could have just stayed home and gotten quiet and turned inward. I think some of you have read this story. I think I've, I've shared it with some of you, the story of Isaac of Yekel. He was a, a poor Jew, poor as in uh, poverty stricken. He was very humble and, and um, he lived for years from hand to mouth. But he was also very devout. And so he really trusted that God would take care of him. And so one night <clears throat> he dreamt of uh, that there was buried treasure under the Voltava River in Prague. And then he dreamt it a second night. And then he dreamt it a third night. And he thought, okay, this is a sign. And so on the fourth morning, he packed up a few things and he packed uh, some food and he set off from Krakow to Prague. And many days later, he arrived and he was so dusty and tired. And there's this glittering city and he sees in the distance, the palace and the river. And there's a bridge. And he realizes that the dream showed that the, the, the treasure was buried under the bridge. And so he makes his way down there. First, he, he offers a prayer of gratitude and he makes his way down to the river. But as he gets closer, he sees that it's being guarded. And so he kind of, he takes his post behind a tree and then just spends day after day just watching, waiting for an opportunity to get closer. And the, the, one of the officers notices this, you know, slightly disheveled man is hanging there day after day after day. And so after a while, he's like, okay, I'm going I'm to see what this man is up to. So he goes up to him and says, you know, what are you doing here? You can't be here. And Isaac at first thinks of just making up a story. And then he's like, you know, I came all this way. I have faith in God. And so I'm just going to tell the truth. And he tells this man of his dream. And the officer just laughs. He says, you know, you Poles, you are so gullible. Everybody dreams about buried treasure. I mean, just the other day, I dreamt that there was treasure buried under the stove in the house of a man named Isaac of Vieco. But do you see me running over to look for this treasure? And so Isaac thanks him. For his, for his help, for his kindness, and he hightails it back to his house, and he digs under his stove, and he finds a coffer filled with jewels and gold coins. And that is exactly how the spiritual path works. You don't know that you don't have to do all the traveling, that, that everything that you need is right under your feet. If we knew that, we wouldn't go searching. If we knew that in one sense, we would not need practice, right? 
or we would just know what to do. But we don't know where to look or how to look. And so we try something. You know, nowadays we go on Google and we enter something. And I was just talking to one of you um, earlier the other day, you were saying, and I think that's so true, you know, how, how people are, um, the way that they enter something into the search bar in Google assures that they will get the results that they are looking for. Right, so in, in a sense, it's a self, it's, the, it's, a, it's a self-confirming um, search. Kind of, uh, where, what, what do they call that? The, um, I don't remember if it's the observer's bi bias or something like that, you know, that, that when you're, you're um, setting out to, to really confirm your hypothesis, but not to really test it. And, and of course we're biased to zero in on those things that confirm what we already believe. And we do that. We do that with Zazen too. And so that's one of the reasons that I so often speak of really letting your Zazen be completely open. To not just zero in on, I'm focusing on my breath, I'm concentrating on my breath, and therefore everything else is unimportant, because that's not true. Everything that is arising, everything that appears in your mind is important. And really what you're doing is you're learning to see each thing clearly and learning to see what it is that you do need to do with each thing. Which again, all of this may seem very basic, but it isn't. Because if it was basic, then we would be able to translate it very easily into the rest of our lives. And in the midst of conflict, conflict, we would be able to stop and say, this is what's happening right now. And this is what, is what I need to do. This is what is skillful. This is what is not skillful. So not even knowing what I was looking for, I did. I just set out and I started looking and I found what I needed. I was fortunate to find what I needed. And, you know, there was nothing telling me that it was the right path because nothing special seemed to be happening. You know, I wasn't seeing visions. I wasn't having particularly, you know, poignant insights. I was just being with my breath every day and I couldn't not do it. 
And back then I couldn't even have been able to say why, but I couldn't not do it. And so fortunately, so far, you know, I, I, I found this at a time when I still had plenty of time to make the most of it. And even though I didn't know what it was that I was looking for, I think I, I had enough of a sense that in the midst of all the uncertainty that our life throws at us, that there was something that I could rely on, that there was something that was irrevocable. And it was that knowledge that guided my practice. Then, and it's still what guides my practice now, when I don't know how to proceed, when I don't really know where to take the next step, I trust that the ground that I'm already standing on is the ground I need to be standing on as the ground of reality. And when I say, you know, that I believe that we can put an end to suffering, that's what I mean, right? Not that we can be free of suffering as in avoid suffering, but that we can be free within it. That we can be free from one moment to the next. There's a koan, some of you know, that uh, where a monk comes to Master Dongshan and says to him, when cold and heat come, how can we avoid them? And Dongshan says, why, why don't you go to the place where there is no cold or heat? And so you have to be careful here because the monk is asking, how do you avoid it? How do you avoid cold or heat? How do you avoid pain and sadness and fear and despair? The monk thinks that such a thing can be done. They think that if they practice hard enough, they'll be spared from feeling cold or heat. They'll be spared from feeling or from causing pain. And so they're essentially asking when loneliness comes, when disappointment appears, when confusion reigns, when anger rages, how can we avoid them? I mean, they're really asking, how can we not feel what we feel? So if you're working on koans, you know, it's really important. You, you, you have to step inside it. It's not just an abstract universal question and answer, though it is a universal question and answer. But what is the person asking when they're asking this? What are they thinking? And what's in the mind of the one who is answering as they're answering? So that a koan isn't just words on a page or an interesting story, right, in an ancient text. And 
Koans are not weird or irrational, despite what they may look like from the outside. And they're not asking you to be weird or irrational. In fact, if something feels weird, it most likely is, so don't do it. <laughs> you know, you, during session at the monastery, you could always hear this. Somebody would go in and you could almost feel them, you know, take the huge breath and yell at the top of their lungs. Before they were even done, the teacher was already ringing their bell. And you're out. And they would come back into the zendo, you know, the tail between their legs. They're like, yeah, I'm that person. <laughs> And it's not that there's anything wrong with shouting. I mean, you know, there's plenty of koans where monks are shouting. And there's a reason for that. But really, most of the time, one of us does it, we're just imitating. And the teacher can tell. You know, somehow we've learned that it's the, it's the Zen thing to do. That's not how seeing a con or expressing a con works. You have to, you have to mm, distill your life as it is right now and express it. That's the whole point of cons, to get out of your way so life can express itself through you. And just so you know, some of you are answering the very cons you're working on right now, and you don't even know it. So it's not complicated. And it's definitely not weird. So the only thing you have to be is yourself, fully. Fully, 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 fully wholeheartedly, boundlessly. The pointer to this koan says, and this is it's from the Blue Cliff record, it says, 10,000 ages abide by the phrase that determines heaven and earth. Even the thousand sages cannot judge the ability to capture tigers and rhinos. Without any further traces of obstruction, the whole being appears everywhere equally. Why can't the sages judge? Because there is no obstruction. Because the whole being appears everywhere equally. Do you understand? This is how to be free of suffering or pain or discomfort or anything. The whole being appears everywhere equally. And so when the monk asks, how do you avoid cold or heat? And Dongshan says, why don't you go to the place where there is no cold or heat. What is that place? Have you ever been there? How do you go there? Can you go there? Because if you can answer this, then you can answer the next part. Because the monk 
predictably says, well, what is the place where there is no cold or heat? And Domshan says, when it's cold, the cold kills you. When it's hot, the heat kills you. Another translation says, let the cold kill you. Let the heat kill you. But what is this killing? You know, this monk really wants to know. And really, ultimately, that is, that is really the thing that is needed. You just really have to want to know. You have to really want to be free in this moment, in this moment, in this moment of your life. Some years back, I told a story of um, it was a, a young man um, who uh, was in a gang and there was a fight, drugs were involved and he kills the, the leader of the other gang. And they're both, you know, suddenly like 16, 17, they're very young. And at his trial, the mother of the victim is there. And as they sentence the, the perpetrator, the murderer, to life, I believe, in prison, uh, the, the mother of the victim looks at him straight in the eye and says, I'm going to kill you. And he leaves. You know, he's, he's taken away. And years pass, about 10 years pass. And one day he's told that he has a visitor. And when he goes to see who it is, it's the mother of the man he killed. And she begins visiting him in prison. A few years pass, you know, she brings him books, she brings him clothes, you know, they begin to have a relationship. And after a few years, she says to him, you know, I think I can forgive you. By this point, it's been something like 15 years after her own son died. She says, I think I can forgive you. So I forgive you. And then the two of them begin to do, to, to do these um, um, programs. They, they have a name, which I don't remember right now, but it's, uh, they're, they're specifically designed to, to bring together victims and perpetrators, right? And to, to um, encourage a reconciliation process, restore and reconciliation healing, healing process. And the two of them become very involved in doing this. And so their relationship deepens. And after a while, the, the man asks for parole and is granted it. And I think by now it's been 20, 25 years that he's been in prison. And so he's released. And um, the mother of the victim helps him to find a place to live very close to where she lives. And they continue their relationship. And at a certain point, she says to him, you know, you are like my son now. And he often comes over to eat with her. And I think she helps to put him through college. 
And uh, one day they're sitting in her kitchen. And they're kind of, you know, looking back at this life they've spent together. And she says to him, do you remember? Do you remember that day at your trial when I said I was going to kill you? And the other man, he gets very quiet and he just nods and says, yeah, I remember. And she says, the person that you were is dead. The person who killed my son is dead. You are no longer that. Is that the same kind of killing that Dongshan is speaking of? Or is it different? And this isn't a hypothetical question. I mean, you don't have to answer it right this moment, but I suggest that you take it up because it has everything to do with you. It's all about you. Just as Dongshan's cold and heat are all about you. When it's cold, let the cold kill you. When you're angry, let anger kill you. What to do with it? You will know how to act just as this woman did. And you know, we don't have to be heroic to do this. We just have to be wholehearted, whole-bodied, whole-minded. Which, if there is a secret to Buddhism, a secret to Zen, that's it. Just be wholehearted. You know that a blue whale's heart is the size of a piano? Small piano, but a piano. I mean, you, you'd need a truck, I guess, to move it. <laughs> An octopus has three hearts. A zebrafish can regenerate its own heart. But the animal that has the biggest heart to body ratio, a dog. Dog. Maybe that's why they love so unconditionally. They love you no matter what. So to sit when you most want to and when you don't feel like it when it's in single digits and when it's so hot you feel like you're frying from inside. And to sit and let the cold kill you. And to sit and let the heat kill you. To sit, let sitting kill you until there is no one left. <laughs> 
And that only happens when we do let our zazen be this relentless, I guess would be the right word, this constant, this fearless and unconditional. When it doesn't depend on time or place or mood or weather, it doesn't rely on a quiet mind or a willing mind or a knowing mind. It doesn't rely on intelligence, how many concepts you know, Buddhist or not. It doesn't rely on memory, how well you can remember <laughs> what you've seen when you're sitting. Whether you can tell me after this talk what it was all about. I hope you can't. Remember, that is part of my, my wish at the beginning. Leave no trace behind. Because anything that relies on these things, right? Your mood, your intelligence, your ability, your willingness is too small. It's too limited. And your zazen is neither small nor limited. And you are neither small nor limited. Quite the contrary. You, my friends, are unstoppable. So let me end with this poem. It's called In Passing by Lysel Mueller. Lysel, 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 probably Mueller. How swiftly the strained honey of afternoon light flows into darkness and the closed bud shrugs off its special mystery in order to break into blossom as if what exists exists so that it can be lost and become precious. So that it can be lost and thus become precious. For more talks, to get more information about Zvise's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessasvisegoddard.org.